This message was given at Des Moines Campus Fellowship's Summer Leadership Training back in 2020. The theme that year was Designed, where they studied the creation, fall, and redemption of God's beautiful design. We hope you find this encouraging. Well, welcome, you guys. Thank you for having me tonight. This is really exciting. Um, It's a privilege for me to get to hang out with you. I don't know many of you, um, but I was sitting where you're sitting once upon a time, long time ago. I was involved in Drake Campus Fellowship, and so this is, uh, yeah, yep. No disrespect to DMAC or Grandview. That's just that's just my roots. Um, but so my understanding is that you guys are going to be studying Genesis one through three this summer. Is that is that correct? Talking about God's design for human life. And so tonight, yeah, I had some feedback. Oh. You got me, Sumner? All right, I got a thumbs up. Uh, So tonight, we're going to be talking about the concept of marriage, God's design for marriage. And we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. So if you guys have your Bibles or tablets or whatever you got, pull those out and open up to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 15 through 25, and we're going to begin just by reading it together. So here's what it says. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky and to every wild animal, but for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Now, before we get started, a couple things by way of disclaimer. We actually are not going to study through this text tonight, but I wanted to share it with you because it is foundational to God's design for marriage. And what we're going to do is we're going to let the Apostle Paul preach the sermon tonight. And so we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5 where the Apostle Paul gives us an exposition of this text. So that's what we're going to do. And uh, before we get into Ephesians 5, I thought I would ask you guys a question quick to start. So show of hands, how many people in this room, and if you're, if you're staff, you're not, um, you're not a student, you still have to raise your hand. How many people in this room are married? Show of hands. I got four. I got four people. All right. I figured that's what it would be. Um, and so this is going to be the way that we approach this topic might be a little bit different if this was a room full of married people. Some of you guys might not know me. I'm uh, one of the pastors at our Altoona location. My name is Darren Miedema, and I am a happily married man. Very thankful for that. But I got connected to the church um, all the way back in 2002. 
through campus fellowship at Drake University. And God used those years at Drake really to radically transform my life. And so when we graduated in 2006, we had a little Bible study of sort of post-Drake, didn't really know, kind of awkward, no home, didn't know what we were doing. And about a year after that, that little Bible study of about 30 uh, college grads decided that we were going to start the downtown church, the downtown location, which is this location we're sitting in right now. And so it's pretty incredible to be a part of that. And what happened is we started with about 30 people, and over the course of the first year, we probably had something like 100 people, which is pretty good. We were very excited about that. Uh, and so we were meeting a lot of new people, a lot of young, single people coming into the church and, and coming to Christ. And so I was meeting a lot of new people, making a lot of new friends. But there was this one girl in particular that I couldn't help but notice. Her name was McKenna Sprague. And I remember the first time I ever saw her at church, I remember thinking, wow, that's weird. I didn't know that there was supermodels that live in Des Moines, Iowa. <laughs> but there's one right there, you know? And so naturally, I was terrified of her. Um, but over the course of about the next two years, what I noticed from a distance was that she really loved Christ. And she really loved people. And she was humble. And she was under authority. And she was really all in on the Great Commission. And so I decided to follow Beyonce's advice, and I put a ring on it. You know, it's pretty much that simple. <laughs> Wasn't that simple. <laughs> but for those of you guys who don't know my wife, here's a picture of her right here. There she is. That's my beautiful bride, McKenna. And um, my marriage to this sweet, gorgeous girl has been by far, apart from the grace of God and, and, and coming to Jesus Christ, it's been by far the greatest privilege of my life. Marriage is an incredible, incredible blessing. And I think that this is the way that God has designed it, is that apart from himself, one of God's greatest gifts to humanity, we see it happening right here in Genesis chapter 2, it is marriage. It's a wonderful, wonderful gift. And apart from Christ, there is nobody in the world that I love more than my wife. There's nobody who's a better friend to me. There is nobody who knows me better. There's nobody who's more helpful or encouraging to my life than McKenna. It's not my kids. I love my kids, but it's not my kids. It's not my parents. It's not my friends. And that's saying a lot. God has given me some amazing friends and family, but nobody compares to my wife. Nobody brings me more joy or fulfillment than her. But... It has not always been that way, believe it or not. Uh, we've been married for 10 years, and I would say the first three to four years of our marriage did not feel like a privilege. They felt at times like a trial. Now, maybe I'm being a little bit overly dramatic, but it was, it was really, really hard at times, and it wasn't characterized by joy and intimacy and unity. Uh, it was characterized by frustration and confusion and anger at times, and pain, not 100% of the time. You know, we had a lot of good memories from that first few years of marriage, but a lot of difficulty, a lot of conflict. And so here's how I want to encourage you as a group of young people, most of whom are not married, okay? This is what I want you to understand, is that marriage is difficult, okay? <laughs> marriage is hard. Now, here's what probably happened when I just said that. Half of you are thinking, no, nah, I don't think so. I don't think that's right. And the other half of you are not very excited about what I just said. So some of you are thinking, I don't know if I want to hear this. And then the other half is like, nah, that's not how it's going to go down for me, bud. You know, I got, I'm going to do a lot better than that. Uh, but marriage is hard 
trust me, marriage is a lot of work and a lot of pain. And so here's the question. If marriage is supposed to be like one of the greatest privileges of God's design, one of the greatest gifts to mankind by our Creator, apart from Christ, why can marriage be so difficult? And this is a little bit harder for you guys to understand because you're not married, but you have parents, and uh, you've seen other people who are married, and, and you've seen married people when they're not getting along, and you've seen married people go through very difficult circumstances. And so you know what I'm talking about. Maybe not experientially, but marriage can be very difficult. Why is that? If it's God's design and His gift to humanity, why can it be so hard? Well, the answer is obviously because of sin. You know, we have, a, even as Christians, a sinful flesh, and so we have selfish inclinations, and so you get two sinners uh, under the same roof, and there's going to be some fireworks at times. But there's actually another reason that's a little bit more fundamental than that. I shouldn't say necessarily more fundamental, but a little bit less intuitive at least. And that is because many, many people, married and unmarried, they don't understand what marriage is for. They don't know what it's for. So they go into it with the wrong expectations. They don't understand God's design for marriage. And I think marriage is a lot like furniture from Ikea. We've got some college students here. Raise your hand if you've ever put together furniture from Ikea. Okay. God bless you guys. You know, Brave warriors. Well, Ikea is like cheap Swedish flat pack furniture. And you go buy it in a big warehouse like in Minneapolis or Kansas City. And it looks really good. And the price is really nice. Uh, and the reason for that is because it's like a nightmare to put together. And so the way that this works is it's, it's very complex. You get a set of instructions with no words. And there's pieces that snap together, never to be unlocked again, you know, unless you want to break it. And so when you put together IKEA furniture, it's very complicated and the stakes are very high. And normally, when I put things together, I'm not like an instruction guy. I'm like, okay, here we go. You know, I can, I can intuit this. I can figure it out. But you do not dare do that with IKEA furniture. And if you do, you end up with something like this. I've got a picture here. <laughs> this guy is just given up. And you look at his chair and he just knows that chair, there's no going back with that chair. I mean, you could cut the legs off and glue them on. But that's what you get with IKEA furniture. It snaps together and then it's done. And so when you put together IKEA furniture, the stakes are very high, it's very complicated, and so what do you do? Those of you guys who put it together, what do you do? You get out that manual and you look at those pictures of those little stick people and you're like, help me, help show me what to do. You know, you, you meticulously go through the instructions. And so you're looking to the designer of the furniture. You're saying, IKEA, I need your help. I must rely on you and you look to the instructions. And I would say that marriage works much the same way. Your only chance, every single one of you, some of you will get married, some of you will not, but those of you who do, your only chance at a healthy marriage that is full of life and joy is to look desperately to God. That's it. To look to God, who is the designer of marriage, and say, God, help me. How do I do this? What is this for? And God answers those questions in the instructions that he's given us in his word. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5. And before we jump in here, let me just pray for us quickly. That was a long prelude. I apologize. Uh, God, we just thank you for your word. It's incredible to me, Lord, that you have not left us in the dark. 
God, all of life's most important questions and issues you have spoken so precisely and so clearly into. God, these things were written down thousands of years ago and they speak so poignantly into our lives today. It's supernatural. It is your grace and we just thank you, God. And I just pray that um, these young men and women here tonight, that they would have humble hearts. God, that you give me grace to communicate accurately from your word. And um, God, that we would move forward in strength. God, that we would understand your design for marriage, that we would uphold it, that we would aspire to it. And God, that you'd give us grace to walk by the power of your spirit in your truth. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, Ephesians 5. If you have your Bible, you can turn there, and this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. Ephesians 5, we're going to look at verses 22 through 33. And here's what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. He says, Wives, Submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are to submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So Paul is quoting directly from Genesis chapter 2. And then he gives us some commentary. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. So Paul is giving us some interpretation, some commentary on Genesis chapter 2, specifically around God's design for marriage. And so this is going to be hopefully very helpful to us. And there's a principle that I want you to just hold in the back of your brain as we go through this material. The principle is this, that things work best when they're used according to their design. You guys have all experienced this. Things work best when they are used according to their design. Uh, I do some, not really woodworking, but I'll do projects and carpentry type stuff around my house, and I always find that I lose a pencil. I can't find a pencil when I need one, and I'm so, I'm I'm like taking screws or nails, and I'm trying to write numbers on the board, and it never works. And you experience this probably every single day, where you're trying to use something not according to its design, and it's frustrating, and it's ineffective. And so if you are not married, which most of you guys are not, then the perspective that you're approaching marriage from is is very different. And so you're probably asking yourself questions like, okay, do I even want to be married? Like, some of you are probably 18. I don't know how old you guys are. 18, 19. You might not be thinking about marriage. Do I even care? Do I even want to be married? Some of you are like, I really want to be married. But am I ready to be married? Is now the right time? Maybe you're 20, you're 21 years old, and you're Still got a couple years of school left. You're thinking, am I ready financially? Am I ready as far as maturity? Am I ready spiritually? Am I ready emotionally? And hopefully the most important question that you're working through before the Lord is, God, do you want me to be married? Is this part of your plan for my life specifically? Would you have me get married? And these are massively important questions. 
I mean, unbelievably important questions. Whether or not you ever get married, it doesn't matter. These questions are going to impact the whole rest of your life, whether you're single or married. They're going to shape your entire life. And you have absolutely zero chance. You have zero chance of answering those questions correctly if you don't understand what marriage is in the first place. How can you adequately assess, okay, should I get married? Do I want to be married? Does God want me to be married? When you don't even know what that means, okay? Now, I'm not saying you guys don't know what that means. You guys are smart. You love God's word. But I'm saying in general, as people, we can't answer those questions if we don't understand God's design for marriage. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at three principles from Ephesians 5 that I think will help you navigate the most critical questions about marriage. And if you do get married one day, they will help you have a great marriage. So we're going to look at three principles. The principles are the priority of marriage, the mystery of marriage, and the mission of marriage. And we're not going to actually work through the text in sequence verse by verse. We're going to put these ideas together kind of like a math equation because that's actually how they work. It's like a puzzle that fits together in a certain sequence. And so the first principle we're going to look at is the priority of marriage. The priority. And so I would say the first thing that you need to understand, according to the Apostle Paul, about marriage and God's design for your marriage is how high the stakes are. The stakes like, could not be any higher when it comes to marriage. Once you are married, there is nothing that impacts your life more than the health of your marriage, apart from maybe your relationship with Christ. So assuming that you're, you're getting time in God's Word, you're humble, you're spending time in prayer, nothing else circumstantially or relationally impacts your life more than the health of your marriage. Look at verse 28. He says, In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. Now, part of what Paul is getting at here with this illustration is that your physical health, you guys understand this, your physical health impacts everything else you do. Everything. And so imagine this hypothetical scenario. Imagine that, um, you know, I, I, I made you this proposition. I have got a vial of, like, horrible terminal illness, and I will give $10 million to anybody who comes up here on stage and lets me inject it into them. Certain death painful, terrible, terminal illness. But you get $10 million. How many of you are going to take that proposition? Zero people, right? (laughs) None of you are going to do that. And the reason why you would not do that is because you understand intuitively that you can't enjoy life. You can't go do anything. You can't operate. You can't function when you're in great pain, when you don't have your physical health. And so what are you going to do with $10 million other than maybe pay medical bills? And so nobody's going to make that trade because we intuitively understand that our health impacts everything else we do. And so this is why some of you guys work out and you jog and you lift weights and I'm assuming that you sleep at night and you eat food and hopefully you brush your teeth and you have good hygiene. All these things are because we intuitively understand that our health is important. Some of you guys probably drink kombucha and eat kale. Anybody drink kombucha in here? Is that popular with the youngsters? All right. Good for you. I like kombucha. But Paul says marriage works the same way. Marriage works the exact same way. He's saying that your ability to do life well and enjoy life are unbelievably dependent on the health of your marriage. That's his point. And so 
For me, the first four years of my marriage uh, were difficult. And it was not always very healthy, especially in the first couple of years. It, it just seemed like every couple weeks, every two, three weeks, we would get in a pretty heated fight. And, and then we'd have to just like work through that conflict and try to get united. And it was difficult. And there was times where I felt totally paralyzed by that, even though everything else in my life was going well. So work was going well. Financially, things were going well. Relationships with friends and people in the church were going well. Ministry was going well. Everything was going well. And yet it felt like nothing was going well. And just about everybody that you talk to who experiences difficulty in their marriage will tell you the same thing. It just dwarfs everything else that's going on in your life. Tim Keller puts it this way. There's a book out there. I saw it on the table. It's called The Meaning of Marriage. Incredible book. And he says this in that book about the priority of marriage. He says, the reason it must have priority is because of the power of marriage. Marriage has the power to set the course of your life as a whole. If your marriage is strong, even if all the circumstances in your life around you are filled with trouble and weakness, it won't matter. You will be able to move out into the world in strength. However, if your marriage is weak, even if all the circumstances in your life around you are marked by success and strength, it won't matter. You will move out into the world in weakness. Marriage has that kind of power, the power to set the course of your whole life. It has that power because it was instituted by God. And because it has that unequaled power, it must have an unequaled supreme priority. And this goes both ways. A very good friend of mine, about a year ago, died of cancer. He was 30 years old. And he had been married for about seven years. And he had a wonderful marriage. I mean, him, him and his wife had a sweet, beautiful friendship and marriage. And that was 18 months of chemotherapy, 18 months of hell. I mean, it was awful. But when you interact with him and, and with his wife, there was just a joy. You know, it, it was difficult, it was sad, but there was a joy. And, and that was mostly, I mean, the biggest part of that was because they're Christians. And he knew that his hope was secure, but I would say a huge part of it also was the sweetness of his marriage. It was the unity that he had with his wife, and they just said, we can do this together because we're united, and we love each other, and we're friends, and we're in it together. So marriage has that kind of impact in your life. It will impact basically everything else going on. It impacts your work, your friendships, your church life, everything. And so what that means is that after your own personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you are married, do you know what your next highest priority is? It's your spouse. And specifically, it is the health of your spouse. So if you're going to prioritize marriage, that means practically you must prioritize the health of your spouse. So their physical health, their spiritual health, their mental health, their emotional health, that is your top priority, your top allegiance after Jesus Christ. Look at what Paul says again in verse 28. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And so young men... If you ever become a husband, once you become a husband, you're going to have arms physically. You will still have your arms, <laughs> and you will have legs, and you will have feet and hands and eyes, and all of these things that allow you to go out into the world and operate in strength. And Paul says, you also have a wife, and your wife is an extension of you just like your limbs, but she's far more valuable. 
And just like the health of your body will impact the course of your life, if you break your leg, that is going to inhibit your ability to go out and do what you need to do. He says, the health of your wife impacts your life the same way and more. And it's not just husbands who are to prioritize their wives. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. And so, young ladies... If you ever become a wife, you will still have your arms and legs, fortunately, and you're going to have hands, and you have feet, and you have eyes and ears, and you have all of these body parts that are connected to your head. And your head helps your body go out into the world in strength, and it helps unite all of the parts of your body in concert to work together. And Paul says, you also have a husband. And just like if your head is not functioning properly, if your brain is not sending the correct signals to your various limbs so that they can work in concert with the rest of your body, that's going to have a massive impact on your life, on your physical health. And he says the same is true of your husband. And so part of why marriage can be difficult is because it carries with it an incredible weight of responsibility an unbelievable weight of responsibility. It doesn't matter if you're a husband or a wife, you have a person now that you are responsible for in a way that you've never had to be responsible before in your life. And so you need to approach it with incredible seriousness. Now, why does marriage have that kind of power in our lives? Why does it have that kind of influence? What is because of our second principle from Ephesians chapter five, which is the mystery of marriage? The mystery of marriage. So the purpose of marriage and the power of marriage are revealed in a mystery. Look at verse 31. This is where Paul quotes Genesis 2. He says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Here's his commentary. This mystery is profound. He's referring to Genesis 2. This mystery of marriage is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now the mystery here... It's not like a Nancy Drew or a Hardy Boy novel. It's not like that kind of mystery. The Greek word, it means a hidden or secret thing that is not obvious to the understanding. And so what is the mystery that Paul is talking about? What is the secret hidden thing? How many of you guys have ever been to a wedding at Walnut Creek? Anybody? Okay, this is good. <laughs> You're going to probably end up going to a lot more weddings at Walnut Creek uh, if you stay here for the next few years. But if you've ever been to a wedding at Walnut Creek, then you've probably heard this passage taught on. Ephesians 5, to become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And when you get a little bit older like me, if you're still at Walnut Creek, you will have heard this passage explained no less than like 150 times. <laughs> and so what can happen is you say, yeah, 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 I got it. You know, marriage mystery, Christ in the church. Got it. Next. Seriously, and that can be our attitude. Uh, but it is so much bigger than that. This idea is so much deeper than that. Uh, this idea of a mystery, this idea of a secret hidden truth, it is woven all throughout the book of Ephesians, the whole book. And Ephesians is not a book primarily about marriage. We get this one little paragraph about marriage. But this idea of a mystery is a main theme in the book of Ephesians. And so the mystery goes much deeper than just marriage. And as you look at Ephesians, there are three major pieces to the mystery. So when you think in the future, when you think of the mystery of marriage, or when you go to a wedding at Walnut Creek and you hear one of our pastors talk about this verse, 
This is what I want you to remember. What is the mystery of marriage? There's three things. The plan, the people, and the process. And this isn't just the mystery of marriage. This is the mis- like the mystery. The mystery of the Bible. It includes the plan, the people, and the process. So the first part of the mystery is the plan. What is the plan? The plan is that God is reconciling people to Himself through Christ. That's the plan. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure that He purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time. So he says the mystery, it includes God's plan. What's the plan? To bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in Him. Now, I'm not going to try to pronounce this Greek word for bring everything together, but it means to gather into one. It has a connotation, a meaning of reconciliation. That's the idea. This is reconciliation. This is God reuniting things that were broken apart because of sin. This is the gospel. So if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, God created Adam and Eve. He created the universe. He created everything in it. God is holy. He's perfect. He's righteous. He's just. He's completely without any defect or sin of any kind. And He made a perfect universe. And in that universe, He placed man and woman to have dominion. And, and, and to reflect His glory into the world. And what happens in Genesis chapter 3? I think we're early in the summer still, so I'm sure you guys will get taught about this, but I know you already know it. Spoiler alert, yeah, not really. They sinned. Adam and Eve sinned. And what happened when they sinned was that their perfect relationship with God was broken. There was separation that happened. But all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God made a promise. He said that He was going to send a Messiah who would crush the head of the serpent. And so there's this promise, there's this prophecy that that the story arc goes all the way through the Scriptures, that God is going to go on a rescue mission, and He's going to fix the problem of sin, and He's going to reconcile people back to Himself. And the culmination of this was with the Lord Jesus. This is why Jesus came. God became a human being. He lived a perfect, sinless life, and then He went to the cross as your substitute. As my substitute, he went to the cross and he received the penalty that we deserve for our sins. He took our guilt on himself and then he died. Then he rose from death. He conquered sin and death. And all of that was fulfilling the prophecy made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. So that anybody who would repent of their sin and look to the Lord Jesus, their sins will be cleansed. They'll be wiped clean. They'll be washed away. They'll be given the righteousness of Christ. And then what can happen? Reconciliation so that you can be rejoined into the relationship with God that you were made for. And this is God's plan. It's reconciliation. But then the question naturally becomes, well, who's included in the plan? Who are the people? We've got the plan. What about the people? Who is God reconciling? Well, the people that God is reconciling to Himself is all people. It's all people. God is reconciling all people to Himself and to each other. Now, this is where things get real wild, especially if you are a first century Jew. God is reconciling not only people to Himself, but people to one another. Look at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3. 
Again, we see this language. Paul says, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So that's a really long way of saying, I'm about to tell you what the mystery is. What's the mystery, Paul? Colon, verse 6. The Gentiles are co-heirs. Members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, I was thinking about this this week. Oftentimes, I think how insane this would have sounded to a first century Jew or Gentile, for that matter, it gets lost on us. But I actually think right now, the cultural moment that we're living in, we might be able to understand it a little bit better, a little bit. Jews and Gentiles did not coexist. They did not like each other. They did not interact. They weren't friends. They didn't work together. They were totally separate. And, and the Jews, they had an a unrighteous, ungodly sense that they were better than everyone else in the world. All the nations that surrounded them, all the nationalities, all the ethnicities, they said, no, no, we're God's chosen people, and you guys are all inferior. And here comes Paul, and he says, do you want to know what the mystery is? You know what God's plan is? That the Gentiles are in the kingdom. They are part of the people of God. They are members of the same body. I mean, that is unbelievable. That's mind-blowing, earth-shattering. Part of the mystery is that two people who are so different, Jews and Gentiles, could be brought together into one people. Look at Ephesians 2. Verse 15, he says, He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. <clears throat> now, does this sound familiar at all? Two become one. What does that sound like? Well, it's a description of the utmost unity. That's what it is. When two people become one person, you can't be any more united than that, and it is the exact same imagery used to describe the unity between a husband and a wife. Look again at verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. You're starting to get a little bit clearer picture of what the mystery is. And so you have this incredible reconciliation between man and God, but then there, it, it extends to all people. So people will be reconciled to each other, Jews to Gentiles. And that's God's plan. But then he says, not only are they going to be reconciled, there's going to be unbelievable unity. It's not that they're not going to just get along. The two will become one. There will be unity in the church. Now, how is God going to unite people to himself and to each other? Well, the first step is the gospel. We already talked about that. That's Jesus. A person has to become a Christian. But that is just the beginning of a process. And so what is the process? This is the third part of the mystery. The process is that God is transforming people's character and relationships through sanctification in the church. This is what he's doing. This is part of the plans. You have the plan. You have the people. You have the process. Ephesians 4. Verse 11, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. He's talking about different roles given to the church. For what purpose? To build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son growing into maturity 
with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Now, this is unbelievable to me. God's plan is not just to reconcile people to Himself and to save them from sin, give them eternal life, but it's to take each one of us that He pulls out of darkness and then to mature us and to make us just like Jesus. So we don't just get saved from sin, but we get changed. We get transformed over time. So we get new values and we get new desires and we get new ways of thinking and new attitudes and new affections and new pursuits. This is the process of becoming more like Jesus. And this is called sanctification. And so here's the mystery to sum up. God is reconciling the world to himself through the gospel in the church. These are his people. And he's gathering these people from all over the world and not only taking care of the guilt of their sin, but he's also actually healing them of the effects of sin by transforming them into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is that for centuries, the people of God didn't understand this. It's been revealed to us now through the Lord Jesus. So this is the mystery. And if you want to understand God's design for marriage, you have to understand this mystery. Why? Why do we, I mean, this is basically biblical theology. Why do you need to have a good biblical theology to understand marriage? Well, what happens is from Ephesians 4 through the rest of the letter, we're going to get instructions on how this plays out practically. So if you look at Ephesians 4, 5, 6, it gets really practical. The, the first four chapters are very theological, really doctrine-heavy, and then he gets really practical. So he's answering the question in chapter 5, how can we be reconciled through Christ? How can we be sanctified in Christ? And it's within that context that he comes to marriage. And so marriage is like this little microcosm of the greater mystery, and this informs the mission of marriage, the purpose of marriage. Now, do you guys remember the, the key principle that we talked about? at the beginning, the idea that things work best when they're used according to their design. The same is true of marriage. And when you ignore this principle, you're going to run into all kinds of problems. Uh, I've got a few examples of this here. Uh, like these guys, for example, they decided that they wanted to use, uh, what do you call those? air mattress. I was thinking inflatable. It's not an inflatable. It's an air mattress. It looks like an Ozarks Trail air mattress, probably from Walmart. And they said, we want to do some wakeboarding. We don't have a wakeboard or a boat or a lake, but we've got an air mattress. And they probably thought that this was going to be super awesome. And uh, you can tell by the picture that it doesn't really look that awesome. Or these guys, this, this next one here, Now, these guys, they decided that they wanted to have an electric griddle in their kiddie pool for whatever reason. And so they said, we don't have any way to get power to it, but we've got a pair of flip-flops and a surge protector. And I love, you, look, you can see the guy's face who's sitting down. He's so proud of their ingenuity. This is going to end in pain, unfortunately. One more here. This young man. He decided that he wanted to use this chair as a suit of armor, apparently. <laughs> and um, it didn't end well. He's, he's having to be cut out by 
some people there. I don't know who those people are. The guy's got a hacksaw. I love that he's looking at the camera. Like, what, what? What was I supposed to do? <laughs> but the idea is when you try to use things not according to their design, it leads to frustration and it leads to pain. And the same is true of marriage. And so what is marriage for? You cannot evaluate whether or not you should get married. You can't really even evaluate whether or not you want to get married if you can't answer this question biblically. And do you know what most people make the mission of their marriage? Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever just sort of intuitively, when you look around, most marriages, what are people doing? What are they hoping for? What is their purpose? What's their objective? There have been a lot of studies done on this over about the last 40 or 50 years. A lot of sociologists have done statistical analysis surveys. And do you know what they've found as far as why do most people get married? The number one answer is for personal fulfillment. That's it. It's for me. It's for my joy. It's for my satisfaction, my self-actualization, so that I feel good, so that I have purpose and meaning and significance for me, not for their spouse, much less for anybody else in their life. So what does Paul have to say about what marriage is for? You've got to remember the context, the mystery. So he spent four chapters explaining this mystery of reconciliation and unity in the church and sanctification through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's within that much broader context that he finally comes to marriage. And I believe that his point is this. When he comes to chat, he's not just shotgunning randomly. Here's this thing and this thing and this practical thing. His point with this section is he's trying to answer the question, how is this going to play out? How are people going to be reconciled to God? And how is there going to be incredible unity in the church? And how are people going to become more and more mature in Christ? And I believe what he's saying is it is as husbands and wives embrace God's design for their marriage. That's how it fits in. That's how it's part of the mystery. And so two things. The mission of marriage. Two things. These are not comprehensive. There are other purposes for marriage in God's design. But two things that Paul points out from Ephesians 5. Number one, reconciliation. Reconciliation. Look at verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of the body. Now, what we could do if we had like another hour is we could talk about these different roles, the role of a wife and the role of a husband, and those are most often the top questions that get asked about this passage. We're not going to get into that. So forget about the roles just for a second. What is clear from this, more foundationally, is that there needs to be reconciliation happening inside of marriage. He says just like Christ is the savior of the body, the husband is the head of the wife. And it's a picture of reconciliation. So obviously, God does not save a person. He doesn't reconcile a person. He doesn't cleanse anybody's sins through marriage. That only happens when you put your faith in Jesus. But what God does do is that for people who are married, He will use their marriage as the number one place where they are going to learn about the depth of the grace of the gospel. Apart from, apart from God's word, apart from your personal experience and relationship with Jesus Christ, there is nothing else in your life, if you are married and you're living it out according to God's design, 
that will help you learn experientially the depth of God's grace towards you other than marriage. I mean, mean, it's the number one place. It's an incredible part of God's design for marriage. And what this means is that one of your top priorities in marriage, if you guys ever get married, one of the top priorities is that you need to get really, really good at repenting for your sin and forgiving your spouse's sin. Does that sound like a lot of fun? <laughs> it doesn't sound like a lot of fun. But the, it, it, because it's hard. Because grace is costly. Because forgiveness is hard. Because sin has consequences. But see, what God wants to do is He wants to use marriage to help Christians understand His grace even more. To help Christians learn how to forgive even deeper. And as you press into that difficulty... It brings unbelievable joy. It will bear fruit that will blow your mind. And it's a massive part of God's purpose for marriage. It's ongoing reconciliation between you and your spouse. And that ongoing reconciliation, that's what brings about the type of unity that people describe who've been married for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. And they say, no, it just keeps getting better. And it just keeps getting better. And it keeps getting better. And that's in large part because of reconciliation. Because what that reconciliation does is that it reminds you and it instructs you and it teaches you every single day about God's sacrificial forgiveness at the cross and what it cost him. And so if you get married someday and you struggle to repent of sin and you struggle to forgive other people, you're going to get stuck. I mean, it's going to be hard because you're going to be operating outside of God's design. And so many people, they get stuck right here, right here on reconciliation. And so I want you guys to ask yourselves a couple questions. If if, if you're thinking about the future landscape of marriage for you, a couple questions that I think will be helpful. Number one, how are you doing with confession and repentance when you sin? How's that going for you now as a single person? Because if you struggle with it now, you're going to struggle with it more when you get married. If you struggle with it now because you say, I don't want to hurt my friends, I don't want to feel embarrassed when I have to confess this thing or repent of this thing, that gets exponentially more difficult in marriage. Or if it's because of pride, a different kind of pride, where you say, I just don't like to be wrong. And so I avoid having to admit when I'm wrong. That's going to get worse and be more destructive in marriage. And so something to think about. How are you doing with confession and repentance when you sin? Second question is, how are you doing with forgiving others who sin against you? How's that going? Because nobody can hurt you like your spouse can hurt you. I know that sounds weird. And there's probably more grace. It's a little bit easier to give grace to your spouse, someone who you love dearly, who you cherish, who you do life together with. But man, nobody has the capacity for their words to sting like your spouse or to make you feel like garbage when they're inconsiderate. And it will happen. Because no matter who you marry, you're not going to marry Jesus. And they're going to be a flawed human being. And so how are you doing with repentance and with forgiveness? So reconciliation needs to be happening in marriage, but it also should be happening through marriage. 2 Corinthians 5 
Verse 18, it says, everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. This is the plan. This is part of the mystery that he talks about in Ephesians. And has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so the plan is reconciliation. And part of how God is going to communicate that plan to the world is through you guys. And through me. It's through Christians. It's through the church. And so when two Christians come together in marriage, one of the primary activities of a biblical marriage is evangelism. That's what it is. It's not playing beach volleyball. You know, it's, it's not taking the jet skis out. It's evangelism. Now, it doesn't mean you don't have fun in marriage. But when we talk about fundamental design for marriage, one of the primary activities is evangelism. It is going into the lost world together as partners, ambassadors for Jesus Christ. There's a mutual intentionality, you and your spouse, we're going to reach our neighbors. We're going to reach our extended family members. We're going to reach our friends, co-workers. And what I've noticed over the years is that when my wife and I are being intentional to reach lost people together, it's so much easier to give each other grace. Because the gospel is just right there. It's like, it's like there's this objective that we're working towards together. We're praying for people together. And when that fades, your grace for each other tends to fade as well. And so that's number one, as far as the mission of marriage, God's purpose for your marriage, is reconciliation. Number two, sanctification. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Now again, a lot of this has to do with roles, specific instructions for husbands, specific instructions for wives, but what is rooting that instruction is the idea that in marriage there should be sanctification happening, that both husband and wife together are becoming more and more like Jesus. And what that means is when you get married, God is going to use your spouse to refine you, to mature you, to change you, to make you into something that you aren't right now today, and to make you stronger, and to make you more like Christ. Now, how does that happen? Well, it happens just like all sanctification <laughs> happens. Unfortunately, it happens in large part through pain. That's how sanctification happens. That's how strength is developed. That's how maturity is gained. Look at 1 Corinthians 9. Verse 24, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way as to win the prize. Now, everyone who competes exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, there's a lot going on in that passage, but one of the things that Paul is getting at, this is a picture of sanctification. And so he's saying, if you want to get stronger, if you want to develop endurance like a runner, how does that happen? What well, happens through discipline? 
It happens through struggle. It happens through pain. There's an ethics professor. Actually, this is quoted in Tim Keller's book. This guy's name's Stanley Hauer. And he says this about marriage. He says, destructive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assumes marriage and the family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. I don't know Stanley Hauer, but he sounds like a guy that I would like to hang out with. And maybe you guys think I'm really weird, but this is so helpful. Because what is ubiquitous in our culture as modern Americans is that like there's this perfect person out there for you. And if you can just find them, then your marriage is going to be blissful. And that is not the way it works. What what he means when he says you always marry the wrong person is that the person that you marry is not the person that God intends them to be 10 years from now, and 20 years from now, and 50 years from now. Because of sin. We are all, as Christians, in this process of sanctification. And so when you marry someone, they are not who God wants them to be yet. They're they're saved by the blood of Christ. They're made holy. They're justified in His eyes. But He's got work to do on you and on them. And so in that sense, you always marry the wrong person. There's always going to be difficulty. There's always going to be pain. And I think one of the most common frustrations that I come across, people who are struggling in their marriage, do you know what it is? I hear this often. It's, man, you know, she's always just trying to change me. He's always trying to change me. He's trying to get me to do things differently. And I think, yeah, of of course he is. Of course she is. That's like part of the package. Now, I'm not saying that it's okay to be manipulative. I'm not saying that it's okay to be controlling or overly critical. But we should, just like you guys, you have friendships, and my hope is that you challenge each other. And you encourage each other. And there's there's a sense of we love one another, but we're going to hold each other to a high standard. And that's God's design for marriage as well. And so if you sign up for marriage, but you don't realize you're signing up for major sanctification, you're going to get frustrated. You're going to get stuck if you're not open to being corrected. If you're not patient and kind with your spouse as God changes them. And I think one of the great ironies of marriage is that so many people, they think about marriage and family and their home as like their refuge for the difficulties of life. Work was hard. I can't wait to go home. Put my feet up. This is their refuge. When the reality... When you think about the spiritual realities that are going on, that that we have a God who loves us and we have an enemy who hates us. And he's trying to thwart our lives and our impact for the gospel. And where he can strike easiest and most closely is in your home. It's in your marriage and with your kids. And so home really is where life's difficulties manifest with the most intensity and the highest stakes. And years ago, a good friend of mine said something to me that is stuck. And this has been so helpful. He said, if you go home looking for rest, you will fight. But if you go home to fight, you will find rest. That's Dan Rude. (laughs) Professor Dan Rude. That is so true. If you go home, not not to fight, you know, it's a play on words. But if you go home, you say, I'm going to serve. 
I'm going to lay my life down. I'm going to fight to wash my wife with the word and instruct my kids biblically with patience, which requires supernatural power. If you go home to fight, you'll find real rest in your marriage, real joy in your home life. And so God wants to accomplish sanctification in marriage, but part of his mission also is to accomplish sanctification through marriage, which means that one of the primary activities of marriage has to be discipleship. Discipleship. That you and your spouse together are ordering your lives so that you can be involved in helping younger believers mature in their walk with the Lord. And then if you have children, that's going to be a huge part of your family life is discipling those little kiddos. Discipling people at church who've come to Christ. Maybe it's your neighbors and you've led them to Christ. And now you need to set your life up so that you can get involved together in their marriage. Teach them the Bible. Teach them these principles. But that's, it's costly. It's costly. There were two things that really began to turn the tide in my marriage. McKenna and I, you know, I mentioned the first three or four years, pretty difficult. But there's two things that like really radically transform things around year four. Any guesses as to what those two things were? Reconciliation and sanctification. Yeah. There's a lot of other stuff too. I mean, we, we, we just were, had no idea what we were doing. I, you know, I think we got married and we, we were pretty good about reaching out to people. Uh, we were all in on the church, sharing the gospel, trying to make disciples, serving. Um, we just didn't really know how to do it together. You know, we were so used to doing it on our own. But I would say more than kind of figuring out some of that, like how do we do this together, was that we learned how to give each other grace. And we learned how to embrace being sanctified. This took me a long time. I remember the moment. I won't tell the story because we're getting long here. But I remember the moment that God was like, no, no, Darren, I'm trying to change you here. And I said, oh, okay. And it's not always easy to this day. I mean, marriage is going to be work. But man, marriage is, is a sweet, sweet, beautiful thing when you embrace God's design. And so just quickly, I've got two points of application for you guys. Number one, Understand God's design for marriage. You got to understand it. You got to embrace it. And uh, these principles, two principles from Ephesians 5, they are not the exhaustive list of God's design for marriage. God has designed marriage for unity, and He's designed it for friendship, and He's designed it for pleasure and for intimacy and for raising children. He's designed it, all of those things are included in His design. But I think those things are a little bit more intuitive. Like most of you guys, if I said, what do you think God's design is for marriage? You'd probably be able to fill in all of those blanks. And I think typically when people get tripped up in their marriage, it's because of these two things. It's because of sanctification and reconciliation that they don't understand how integral that is to their marriage relationship and how to do it together, how to have it in their marriage and through their marriage. So they don't understand the missional aspects of God's design of reconciliation, sanctification. Number two, application. Aim at God's mission first. So most of you guys are single, and it's good. It's very good, very helpful, very necessary to understand God's design for marriage. But what can happen at your age, I've been there, is you get preoccupied with it. And you think, oh, i got to get a girlfriend, i got to get a boyfriend, you know, and, and, and there's like this thing inside of you that can start to freak out. 
And one of the best ways to combat that is that you aim at God's mission first. So you don't have to be married to be involved in reconciliation and sanctification. You don't have to be married to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And if you aim at marriage first, if you make that the priority and that the point, there's a very good chance that you'll get married. You'll likely find somebody who will put up with you and you'll get married. But more than likely, if that's your goal, your marriage will not be all that fruitful. Now, God can come in and transform and there's grace, but a way better approach is that you aim first at being an ambassador for Jesus Christ, at sharing the gospel of the world around you, at making disciples. And then what is going to happen, more than likely, for most of you over time, is that you will get to a point where you say, I think I actually could be more fruitful for the gospel if I was married. That's what just naturally happens over the course of life. Now, God calls some people to singleness. God might call some of you to go overseas. Maybe it might not make sense to get married. But for many of you, if you labor for the Lord and you're involved in His mission and you're making disciples, you're going to get to a certain point circumstantially. It'll be different for all of you. But you're going to say, I think I could do this better if I was married at this stage in my life. And God will give you wisdom about when that might be. But if you treat marriage as an end in itself, probably not going to go all that well. But if you see it as a means to a greater end of gospel fruitfulness, when you aim at God's plan, I think that's when you can really experience marriage according to His design. So, I know that this was maybe not like a super uplifting, encouraging, like, hey guys, marriage is awesome and you should, you should all want to get married. But my hope is that you sense the seriousness of it. Marriage is wonderful. I love my wife. We laugh like crazy. We love our kids. I would commend marriage to all of you. It's wonderful. It's amazing. But there's a sobriety that you need to have in your soul as you approach it. And I think when you have that sobriety, man, you can save yourself years of pain and years of frustration and years of of wasting time that you could have been running hard after God and being fruitful for the gospel. And so I would just save you from, from a lot of that. And it all happens as we understand and embrace God's design for marriage. So let me pray for us here. God, thank you for my brothers and sisters here who put up with my long-winded message. And um, God, thank you for uh, just the Bible. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you don't um, just leave us to our own devices. God, I thank you for the incredible privilege and gift of marriage. And God, I just pray for these young men and women that you would help them to navigate all of the complexities of these issues. God, we live in a culture that is really more and more opposed to traditional family, much less the gospel. And so God, I just pray that that you give all these young men and women uh, just strength, boldness, courage, endurance, God. It requires real faith to do things your way, particularly when it comes to relationships and sexuality. And so, God, I just pray that you'd strengthen them, God. You'd deepen their convictions that these things are right and true and really worthy of pursuing the way that you have told us to pursue them. God, I pray that our church would be a light. God, that we would have incredible families, incredible marriages, incredible kids who grow up and love Jesus. God, that we could shine brightly in the world around us for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Welcome in. Campus Fellowship is a student organization designed to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. If you found this encouraging, we invite you to subscribe or follow for more content or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Thanks for listening.